This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We need to think about labor power in a new way. And we need to think about it in terms of, you know, both having a job that we're proud of, a career that w- that is satisfying to us, and not taking shit when it comes to negotiating for the pay that we and our colleagues deserve. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 545 with guest Tara McMullen. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. We're shifting gears a little bit, just a little bit, just a just a little touch of shifting gears. Tara McMillan is here, and I've known Tara forever. In internet years, it's like 100 years. And she's one of the smartest people I know. She truly is. And we're talking about goal setting. We're talking about money and finances. Um, we even talk about the economy a little bit because sometimes it's confusing. We use that word and I'm like, what does that actually mean? And how does it impact us? I had some I had some questions. I, I, she's just so incredibly smart and I love talking to her and I really wanted to introduce her to you all. A few of you have reached out um, in Instagram DMs and asked how you can support me through this time of uh, of my divorce and all of that. First of all, I appreciate you so much. And there's a couple of things. First, you can uh, support the sponsors of this show. That helps me so much to be able to actually keep doing it. <laughs> there's that. And then also leaving a review for any of my books or the podcast on any platform for the books, if it's Goodreads or Amazon or probably the two biggest ones. And then for reviews, wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, whether it's, I, I use, what do I use? Google Podcasts. I know a lot of you use Spotify and, and other apps and platforms. Leaving a review would be incredibly helpful. And one more way you can support me, I have a surplus inventory of my books here in my home office. So if you want to grab a personalized signed copy of one or more of them, you can. 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, and or Make Some Noise. I can mail those out to you. It is going to be US addresses only just to keep it simple. And head on over to andreaowen.com slash links. You will find my link tree there. And it will be one of the very top options that says grab a personalized signed copy of my books and you can fill out the form. I've kept it really simple, the payment and everything. It is over there so you can grab yourself a copy. I just love you guys so much. Thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast after 10 years, 10 years of podcasting. Can you believe it? I still love doing it. I still love having these conversations and, and bringing them to you. And starting in this fall, now that I'm you know back 
to the kind of what is what is the word I'm looking for? Thank you, perimenopause. The rigmarole of of doing things, just getting back to work. We are going to incorporate some of the things that you asked for on the survey that was hand, that was handed out. Like it's a classroom. <laughs> Earlier at the beginning of 2023, so many of you filled out a survey and asked for some things, and we are figuring out how to incorporate those. So stay tuned for that. And I just thank you from the absolute bottom of my heart, the top of my heart, the sides, the middle, all of it, my whole heart. I thank you. All right. So let me introduce uh, today's guest. For those of you that don't know her, Tara McMullen is a writer, podcaster, and producer. For over 13 years, she's studied small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them, and what they hope for the future. She's the author of What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. She's also the host of What Works, a podcast about navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. And Tara is co-founder of Yellow House Media, a boutique podcast production company. Her work has been featured in Fast Company, The Startup, The Muse, and The Huffington Post. So without further ado, here is Tara. Tara, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I don't know if I've had you on my show before. I don't think so. I don't You've think been so on mine. I have been on your show. I think maybe twice, but <laughs> I think so. I'm almost embarrassed that you haven't been on my show because I've been <laughs> such a fan of your work and participated in your programs before. And you and I have known each other in the inter- on the internet for probably over a decade at this point. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you're finally here that I can introduce you to my audience. And I, I know that the people listening are very much, I kind of call them personal development junkies. They love, you know, how can I make my life better one inch at a time? And so let's let's start there. What are the different types, in, in your words, what are the different types of goal setting and how can setting goals impact how you approach the concept of finances? Yeah. So goals and finances obviously have a ton of overlap, um, especially in the world that I come from, which is predominantly entrepreneurs and small business owners. Um, But it really has a lot of overlap no matter what your career path is, what your professional life is like. Um, So for me, goals kind of fall into this bucket of uh, often these outcomes that we start to form identities around and that Mm -hmm. we start to think, okay, well, if I can get to this point, right, if I can achieve this thing, if I can accomplish this thing, if I can get this promotion, then my life is going to be a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable. um, And I'll have sort of self-actualized. Right. right? I've arrived. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I will have arrived. And what I've found both for myself and in working with people on this over the years is that the nature of setting a goal in that way means that you never feel like you've arrived. Because as soon as you hit that goal that you've set, that outcome that you associate with having arrived, you realize, oh, wait, Mm -hmm. there's three other things on the other side of that that I need to go after next. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We're constantly moving the goalpost. We're constantly um, seeking external validation for uh, the way we show up in the world, who we are, what our value is, what our worth is in society. And goal setting has a tendency to exacerbate that. So that's sort of my that's sort of like the bird's eye view of my 
issues with mm-hmm. traditional goal setting advice. <laughs> and then in terms of finances, it really is a hundred percent overlap there, right? As soon as you say, well, I want a job that pays me $80,000 a year. Well, as soon as you get to $80,000 a year, you're like, oh, well, but there's, you know, my friends make a hundred thousand dollars a year, or I know an executive that makes $200,000 a year or whatever it might be. Or you buy the house and, you know, you're there for six months before you realize, oh, well, I should have gotten a house that had this and I should have gotten a house that was actually in this neighborhood. And so we're always, as you said, moving the goalposts. And that that's a... It's sort of how almost we define our lifestyles anymore is that constant pursuit of the next thing. And it's exhausting. It is, uh, it can be self-alienating. It can be just really demoralizing Mm -hmm. to always feel like you've not quite gotten it, that things aren't quite the way they should be. That's not the kind of life that I want to live. That's not the kind of money situation that I want to have. Um, And so a lot of my work uh, right now is really focused on how do we unpack those different stories? How do we address this in different ways that maybe can serve us uh, and serve our comfort level and our stability uh, a little bit better. I love I love that you're doing that. And I, I think it's so necessary, especially in our fast pace and, and especially kind of following the, the boss babe hustle culture few years that I think we all kind of got sucked into. And, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I can't speak for you, but I certainly got sucked into it. And I know a lot of my my friends and colleagues got sucked into it, whether you were an entrepreneur or not. And one of the one of the silver linings of the pandemic for me, so you don't know this about me, Tara. And I think I've maybe mentioned it in passing on the podcast before, is that one of the great outcomes for me was that like you exactly like you were saying, I can relate to what you're saying. I was just exhausted and demoralized and at times like felt like a failure because I kept moving the mm-hmm. goalpost and kept making my my recipe for success higher and higher. The pandemic happened. And after a few months, I was hearing from some of my colleagues, they were like, my business has never been better. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on, but I'm having my best year yet. Or a lot of them were like, yeah, nothing's really changed. You know, things are the same. Meanwhile, <laughs> over at the Owen house, like my mental <laughs> health took a yeah. shit. And I was like, okay, I need to shut a bunch of things down. I need to just totally focus on my mental health. Like it was the worst it had been in a really long time. And at the end of the year, when I went to get my taxes done, I had had the worst year ever financially. Oh my God. Terms of revenue. And every year previously, I had climbed, I had gotten, mm-hmm. and I had made some big leaps over like the last handful of years. And the best thing that came of it is both my CPA and my financial advisor, who are both women, by the way, were like, Andrea, this is normal. Like yeah. all business owners face years where they have sometimes major setbacks. And sometimes it's like multiple years in a row. And sometimes it's like every five years, they'll just like, have a really bad yeah. year. And I was like, get out. Really? <laughs> like, I was so thankful to hear that. And and I, I think that I don't know if not enough people are talking about that. Like there's just not a whole lot of people raising their hand going, you know what? I had a shit year (laughs) my revenue or, you know, like, or, or, you know, like, or even someone who had a huge problem with their house, you know, and had to get a new roof and had to take Mm -hmm. out a loan or something for $40,000. Like we don't 
I don't know about you, but I don't hear about those that often. No, no. Um, and this has also been a soapbox of mine over the years <laughs> to try to push back on that because you're right. Like hockey stick growth over decades is not, it's just not how it works. It's not mm-hmm. how it happens. Um, and it's a, it's a completely unrealistic expectation just from like a business model career kind of perspective, right? But there are all sorts of things that we do in our businesses, good and and not so good, that result in, you know, big contractions. One of the things that I've encouraged people to do and something that I do for myself is to make planned contractions. So mm-hmm. if we can say, all right, I know that there are going to be years that aren't as good as you know, what my normal is or what my average is, when can I plan a contraction to take advantage of what is inevitably coming to pivot, to try something new, to go into a different um, space creatively? I think that authors do this pretty instinctively because you need time away to write a book. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's really valuable for anyone, even people who are not business owners, to think about like, okay, what if next year I just didn't put the pressure on myself yeah. to make more than I did the year before? Or what if I allowed myself a 25% contraction in revenue or income or you know whatever numbers you're looking at? And how might I use that space to get back into growth in a way that I enjoy, that I love, that I feel good about even more than I do right now. Yeah, I I completely agree that people don't talk about it and completely agree that we need to talk about it more because that unrelenting growth or the expectation of unrelenting growth is unrealistic. And it's also at the root of so many things that are wrong in our financial system. Yes, that. And I think it's a recipe for burnout, I think, especially for women who tend to bear the brunt of household work or are the primary caregiver if they are a parent. And I'm thinking about people listening to this who, you know, might be a little bit more obvious for someone who either is an entrepreneur or works in sales or on commission. You know, maybe they look at that as just pulling the pressure off of themselves to exceed their, um, you know, their previous quarter or previous year's growth but even people who who do work 9 to 5s like maybe maybe it's not maybe you don't go after the promotion maybe yep. you don't take on extra projects in order to have an amazing yearly review and and yep. things like that and that can be i think both scary and also very counterintuitive because we've grown up in a culture that is capitalism with a capital C, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? You're not going to work your ass off at, at the detriment of your own physical health. <laughs> it's the American way. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And not only is it capitalism with a capital C, like economically speaking, but it's also the cultural capitalism that really wrecks us in this area because it's not, we don't just feel the pressure to earn more money or to produce more, we feel the pressure to work ourselves harder and harder year over year. And that is, as you said, it's a easy road to burnout. It is very demoralizing. It's often self-alienating. And it's just not a it's just not a nice way to live. <laughs> it's not. And and it's it's been interesting the last couple of years. I have taken my foot off the gas for the last two years. 
you know, some people might laugh at that and they're like, Andrea, you literally wrote an entire book. <laughs> like, put a book out into the world. Like, what are you talking about? Because I did. I signed a contract at the beginning of 2020, wrote a book. It came out in the summer of 2021. And so that that is a big deal. But to be honest, like it was my third book. It it was something it I hate to say it, but it wasn't that hard for me. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who I would look at their job and think that was so hard. And they're like, mm-hmm. I've been doing it for so long. It's really not that hard. <laughs> I could do it in my sleep, <laughs> but that's really how it was. And so I say all this, my point is, is that it has been a tremendous le- learning lesson, uh, you know, coming from the generation before me, baby boomers and silent generation, where they instilled in us, you have to work hard in order to be a good person. Like it's not mm-hmm. just- <laughs> It's not just about being successful. It's like, uh, good people work hard. So to pull my foot off the gas feels just like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. That's uh, in my book, that's what chapter two is all about, is looking at where does this moral framework of being a hard worker makes you a good person come from. Uh, And there's a whole long history of it in the United States, going back to colonial days with uh, the Puritans and what we now know as as Protestant work ethic. Max Weber, uh, who is one of the original sociologists, one of the fathers of the field, he did this whole analysis of how Protestant work ethic created the the specific flavor of capitalism that we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we have that whole swing. We have rugged individualism with Herbert Hoover. We've got Reaganomics and Thatcherism and uh, what's now known as neoliberalism in terms of, you know, it's your responsibility to be yeah. okay. It's nobody else's responsibility. All of those things are tied together. And at the heart of it, they're tied to supremacy culture at its at its very root mm-hmm. where we have learned to rank ourselves against others. And so when we, when we talk about growth, we're not just talking about I'm going to have more money this year than I did the year before. I'm going to have a better job than I did the year before. It's also I'm going to have climbed over these people. Yeah. And we don't we're not conscious of that most of the time. But it is it is there. And mm-hmm. when we dig just below the surface, we can we can really identify those comparisons and that competition that's at the heart of our desire for growth. And when we can identify that and sort of break it down, it takes a lot of the pressure off of the growth. It makes it a lot more okay to feel like you're enough uh, and that you've made enough and that you've done enough at your job or whatever the case might be. And so I think recognizing that, especially when it comes to money or success, is really key to giving yourself the space to take a break, to take it easy, to say, you know what, I'm I'm quite proud of where I am and I'm going to stay here for a while. That arrival is... Um, I kind of ebb and flow. I dance with that. <laughs> and sometimes the dance is awkward and sometimes it's amazing. And um, But I'm glad I'm even, you know, getting out on the dance floor. 
I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling low energy and sluggish and coffee just wasn't giving me what I needed. Especially in these winter months, I struggle with pep in my step. And since drinking AG1, I felt more energized and focused. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. Because aging is a part of life that we all have to deal with, but I don't think it should prevent me from doing the things I love, like going on long hikes with my dog. I want to do the things that matter to me for as long as possible, which is why I drink AG1 every morning to support my brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm laying the groundwork for long-term health. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to have them as a longtime partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com noise. That's drinkag1.com noise. Check it out. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. With Shopify POS, you can accept credit cards, mobile payments, and every other major payment method, all with low fees and transparent pricing, starting on day one. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash noise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash noise to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash noise noise. I, I would love to take like three giant steps back. And can you talk to us about what exactly, like, let's get down to brass tacks. Like what exactly our economy is? Because it, I think it can be c- confusing to people who are not savvy when it comes to business and economic understanding. Can can we just like start there? Like what is our economy? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I actually talked to a Planet Money reporter earlier this year, Stacey Vanek Smith, and the way she defined the economy is just the system that we use to allocate resources, right? Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's how limited resources are allocated across different areas of life and society, governance, all of that. Economics in that way is this really broad brushstroke, right? Mm -hmm. When we think of the economy, we think of things like the stock market, like the Federal Reserve, uh, like taxes, and then, you know, corporate profits and things like that. That's not really what the economy is. There are functions of the economy, but it's not the same thing. Kai Rizdal on Marketplace is always saying the stock market is not the economy. And mm-hmm. that's why we can have 
the stock market soaring. Meanwhile, consumer spending is down or, you know, Mm -hmm. people feel bad about or they feel worried about what's going on in the economy. They're just not the same thing. Okay. But that's the stuff we hear about in like the mainstream news is the stock market and like corporate profits and, you know, those types of things that are just that I think are... I wouldn't say that they're necessarily interesting to everybody, but it's almost like they're buzzwords that like people understand like, oh, I should pay attention to this. We've just been conditioned. (laughs) There's a philosopher named C.T. Nguyen who has a theory of, of games, which in a lot of ways is really a theory of metrics. And one of the things he talks about uh, in that theory is the idea of value capture and value capture is taking a nuanced, complex, um, measurement or understanding of a thing, mm-hmm. reducing it to a simple measurement, and then all of a sudden getting to the point where all we think about is the simple measurement. And so economic, uh, you know, economics is a great example of this. The economy is this nuanced, complex, you can't mm-hmm. sum it up in a simple sentence kind of thing, right? But we fixate on metrics as humans because we like things to be simpler, even Mm -hmm. though we know things are complex. So we look at we look at the Dow Jones and say, that's the economy. Or we look at the NASDAQ and we say, that's the economy. Or we look at uh, interest rates at the Federal Reserve and we say, that's the economy. Those things are not the economy. They're particular measurements that we can use uh, to create a more nuanced and complex idea of what the economy is, but they're not the same thing. And then the problem really comes into play, and this happens both at the macroeconomic level and at the microeconomic level, so like personal finances, is when we fixate on those individual numbers, we learn to play those individual numbers like a game. And so we definitely see this with the stock market. We see it with things like interest rates at the Federal Reserve, where the pressure around inflation is creating pressure to increase interest rates. But we rarely talk about the fact that when interest rates rise, unemployment rises, and that disproportionately affects people who are not white. And so that's all a very complex thing, too. But we think, okay, well, if we could just adjust this number, then things uh-huh. will be better. No, 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 no. That's not how that works. If we could just not put how this we... person in office, then things will yeah. be better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's that's not how that works. How works. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I appreciate that, that little breakdown. And so can you talk to us about what is the passion paradigm and why that is Mm. something that's important to understand? Yes, I love talking about the passion paradigm. So the passion paradigm is a concept coined by a sociologist named Lindsay De Palma. What she identified was that, you know, more and more people are talking about wanting to be passionate about their work, wanting mm-hmm. to love their work. Um, and she's building off some other like labor theorists and sociologists as well. But she did some on the ground, boots on, boots on the ground research of like, all right, how many people actually think it's more important to love your job, to feel passionate about your job than to say, get paid a fair wage? She surveyed engineers graphic designers, and nurses. So three very different fields, but three fields where there is, at least to a degree, there's passion involved, right? People Mm -hmm. get into those fields because there's something about them that they really Really. love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so what she found was startling. 88% of the people that she studied and responded to the survey believed that being passionate about your job was more important than being paid a good wage. Really? Yeah. And it gets worse too. <laughs> like that's the that's the easiest number to wrap your head around. Um but a even higher percentage of those people believed that we should look for work that we're passionate about. And then an equally high percentage of people believed that anyone was capable of finding work that they were passionate about. That kind of gets to the question of like, okay, that sounds good in theory, mm -hmm. but like, who's going to pick up my garbage? And right. who, mm -hmm. right, there's all of these jobs that we kind of forget about yeah. when we're on our soapbox about being passionate about work. Um, and that skews then not only how we think about people who hold those jobs, which is a major issue, but it also think it also skews what we believe we are entitled to or deserve in the workplace. And so the passion paradigm in practice really is all of those times when you've thought, oh, maybe I should ask for a raise and then thought to yourself, well, you know, but I I just love this job so much. I don't want to rock the boat. Like, it's okay if I'm not making a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? It's all of the times when, you know, you've thought, well, you know, I, I would really, I, I would love to go back to school to do this Thing that, you know, it doesn't pay very well, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go out and take out that big student loan, change careers, and go after something that I love that doesn't pay very well. Obviously, there is nothing wrong with making a decision to change careers. There's nothing wrong with making a decision to accept lower pay, mm -hmm. but we're not seeing, it, we're making a trade-off where there doesn't have to be one right? We can love our work and we can understand what a fair market wage is for that job. We can love our work and not let our employer step all over us. We can love our job and not let our employer tell us, well, because you love your job, we're not going to give you more vacation. Mm -hmm. We're not going to give you health insurance. We're not going to give you a flexible schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's all just complete BS, right? We can love our job and feel entitled to the rights and benefits that come from that type of job. And so that's really what the passion paradigm is. And it is a huge, huge issue today, especially as we see you know, wages have been stagnant for the last 40 years. In just the last couple of years, yeah. wages have inched up a right. little bit. But then, of course, what happens as soon as wages inch up a tiny bit? Oh, it's inflation. And we've got mm -hmm. to raise interest rates, which then is going to lay people off, which then is going to cause wages to stagnate again. So this is this is something where we need to think about labor power in a new way and we need to think about it in terms of you know both having a job that we're proud of a career that that is satisfying to us and not taking shit when it comes to negotiating for the pay that we and our colleagues deserve
Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. I I love <laughs> hearing about like studies and th- that I have no idea are even existing. And yeah, of course I have now I have so many questions about that particular field and because I'm sh- I don't know. I mean, I I guess that the stats would look different if she would have surveyed a different group of people like in, like in mm-hmm. a different career, you know, people who are in, you know, dishwashers at restaurants or, you know, fast food workers and um, maids at um, hotels. Like, I don't know, maybe it would have been the same, but my guess is my hunch that it would have been different. Yeah. I mean, I would have, I would love to see that survey as well. I think that we could say that perhaps a much smaller percentage of them would say that they love the job that they currently have. Mm -hmm. But my guess is that a similar percentage of people would believe that it's better to love your job than to be paid well. And that anyone can find a job that they love. Yeah. Uh, I'm betting that those are very similar. I'm also betting that if they were, if you were to survey people in those fields, that there might be a significant portion of folks who feel bad about not having a job that they love. Mm -hmm. And that's also a big problem in our economy. It is a big problem. I'm curious what, and this is not on my list of questions that I was going to ask you, but I'm curious where you think we are going as a country in terms of corporate America and and really any industry that relies on someone at the top, you know, creating a, a paycheck for a lot of people. I think especially with, I think our kids are kind of the same age. I have um, younger Gen Z. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sitting back watching. Like, what? <laughs> this generation, I feel like is kind of like, what is that? What is that Twisted Sister song? Like, we're not going to take it. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> theme song. <laughs> and and I don't I mean I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? If anything. Oh god. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen either. Oh man, it's like okay, how long do you have? Right. Uh, <laughs> just like, try to try to sum long. it up. <laughs> so I think that um we are definitely seeing a larger and larger percentage of people being able to agree that the current system does not work. Right. We don't all inciting those statistics though we have to recognize that not everyone agrees that the system doesn't work in the same way mm-hmm. and so i think before we can have any kind of serious reckoning with our employment system with the economic system as a whole we need to find a way to get back to a more shared set of values and i think what's interesting about that is that a lot of Americans do have a shared set of values. We see that in kind of pulling about general policy positions when they're unhooked from a party position, right? So if we say, you know, do you support the right to an abortion? Do you support universal health care? Do you support all of these like fairly progressive kinds of policies, Mm -hmm. a large percentage, you know, sometimes 
60, 70, 80% of Americans agree on these very progressive positions. And so that to me says, okay, there are some fundamental values that we share, mm-hmm. but the way those values are being co-opted and hijacked by stories and by systems of power make it difficult for us to come to a consensus on actual policy then. Mm-hmm. So I think what's really necessary, and I think what Gen Z may do really well, and and I'm an elder millennial, so mm-hmm. I, I also have a lot of hope for my generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that as, you know, especially as younger Gen Xers, elder millennials get more political power, there's going to be a reckoning with those stories and with those systems of power to say, hey, you say that you value X, Y, or Z, but your policies don't add up right. there. And so if if these are the values that we can all agree on, well, then we need policies that match those values. And so I think that's the necessary first step. It's starting to bubble up, you know, in TikTok and mm-hmm. on, yeah, on you know, on media. the steps, yep, on social media, on the steps of capitals. Uh, but it's still, I think, a long way away. You know, when you think about how geriatric our legislature is, um, how old the president is, all of these things, it's it. Yeah. I mean, the the people who are wanting to make change are still very many, many steps outside of power. Mm -hmm. One thing that I have thought a lot about, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, too, is There was a time when I thought that independent work, so sort of business ownership, gig economy, very, very, very broadly defined as independent work, was going to become a real solution for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I do believe it is a real solution for a lot of people, but I'm increasingly recognizing that independent work is actually a response to more often than not being squeezed out of the job market than a than a choice to sort of separate oneself from that system and the reason for that is because our workforce is more polarized so we've got people who are making you know gob tons of money at the mm-hmm. top um and are highly skilled and then we have low wage workers who are often who are also often highly skilled, um, but they don't require a college degree. They don't, you know, all of these things that we've been told that we need in the middle, uh, they don't have that. And so the middle is being carved out of the workforce. And where do they go? They go to independent work. Mm -hmm. The problem is we don't have the safety net for people who have independent work. And so now we have a middle class that is increasingly precarious. That part I feel like is also sort of a a first step of recognizing, hey, the way our employment system works now is not working for this huge percentage of people who don't have access to work uh, workman's comp, don't have access to unemployment insurance, largely don't have affordable access to healthcare. Uh, that's a big problem, especially when these people could be contributing so much more to society than they're currently able because of the way things are. So that's that's another thing that I think about is like how can we you know, maybe how can we maintain some level of independence and find ways to mutually support each other in kind of new and innovative systems? 
Or how can we find ways to work together within what we think of more as the traditional work sphere, but without, you know, the yuckiness that many of us have experienced there? Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember when I told you like my mental health took a shit in 2020? Yeah. Like that was one of the questions that I laid in bed at night <laughs> worrying about. <laughs> Just, and I also want to say I have enormous amounts of privilege because one of the things yeah. I still think about is what if this had happened to me? You know, like the, a pandemic hit and I in many ways couldn't work. I just was for a matter of weeks, really just like completely debilitated. And I was lucky enough to have a partner who I was married to legally married to and who had, I just had a financial backing that if I Mm -hmm. were a single mother and was all on my own, it would have been a very different story. And because, you know, I don't have health insurance. I don't qualify for, for all of these, these different things that people who have, who have walked into corporate America might qualify for. So I seriously think about communes. Like yeah. that is, <laughs> that makes so much sense to me. And even when I was going to go off on a weird t- side tangent here, when my kids were itty bitty and I, I, I nursed my son, but I nursed my daughter. She was a very easy nurser and I nursed Mm -hmm. her for two and a half years. And sometimes I'd be sitting there nursing her and I would, I was, I would think to myself, and there's always that question, like, 
that people get really weirded out by. It's like, would you nurse someone else's baby or would you let someone else nurse your baby? And I'm like, <laughs> why would you not? Like yeah. somebody's baby is at my house and that, and they're nursing and that mother is gone and this baby is crying and hungry and I have milk. Why on earth? It would be like, if you had milk in your fridge, would you not give it to that baby? But it's yep. different anyway. So I get all of my soapbox on this. So I can totally see living in some kind of place where everybody shares, everybody brings their own kind of talents and resources and whatever. And I am so attached to that, Tara. Like, I'm not, I'm telling you what, like if things fall apart, <laughs> you're going to see me in like a weird white robe somewhere with like a flower crown being you know, like a 50 year old lady trying to nurse somebody's baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, you can have I get a commune it. without it being a cult. That's true. That's true. I, it's I possible. that. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I get it. And and I like, these are the things I think about when, as someone who is part of the quote unquote gig economy, who has, who is passionately running in her own direction. And also all of a sudden stopped and was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't get a lot of the benefits that other people do in this country. And it definitely has its pros and cons. And I try not to think about it too much because I get really worried, but yeah, those are my, those are my, not as, um, not as concrete thoughts of as it comes to economics and things like that, but yeah, just more the emotional side of it. <laughs> You're spot on though, right? Like I also could totally see living in some sort of collective, in, you know, sharing environment with others. Mm -hmm. And why does it have to be a commune? Why does it have to be a collective? Why does it have to be something separate? Because when we think commune, we think separate from the rest right. of the economy. Mm -hmm. Why can't we bring the same values that shape those dreams of having mutual support, mutual aid for our neighbors into the way that we govern and into yeah. the economic policies that we have, right? We have long studies on universal basic income now. We know it works. We know it's good for people. Why are we not pursuing that as a national policy? Mm -hmm. You know, even like with the the experiment with unemployment insurance uh, during the pandemic, where people like us did actually qualify for unemployment insurance if you know COVID impacted revenue, that worked really really well. Mm -hmm. What would it look like if more independent workers had access to some sort of safety net so that they could take a risk, so that they could try to bring a new product to market, so that they could try to innovate in their field? What would that open up for us as a society? Mm -hmm. But the way things are right now, we can't do that, right? We right. don't have a safety net and largely even workers who work for employees who work for employers are losing access to different uh, aspects of the safety net. So yeah, I mean, I'm all for that kind of collective living style. My question is, why does it why does it need to be separate? Why does it need to be exceptional? Can't we bring this into the way we think about mm -hmm. our economic system as a whole, the way many, many other countries do. Yeah, I'm I'm both I have some trepidation and excitement to see the next <laughs> couple of decades 
unfold and and see what happens. And thank you so much. I cannot believe how much time passed so quickly. This is such an interesting conversation. You're just always so brilliant and bring such great thoughts to to my audience. And I appreciate you so much. Is there anything that you wanted to circle back to to make sure that you said before we before we close up? I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the economy because my husband is tired of hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that it's a word that gets thrown around so much. And I know there's like the Netflix, like little 30 minute things where they explain it, the, the mm-hmm. economy explained. And my son is in ninth grade and he's, he's autistic and he's just always been so interested in that kind of stuff. And sometimes he'll mm-hmm. explain stuff to me and I'm like, did you just make that up? Like, <laughs> is that true? Because he's so well from smart. <laughs> yeah, from one autistic economic nerd to another, I totally I get it. <laughs> I appreciate you so much. Where do you want people to go to find more about your work? Yeah, all of my work is centered at explorewhatworks.com. You can find my book about goal setting there. You can find the podcast also called What Works there as well. And then you can find the essays and articles that I write weekly on topics just like these. Yeah. And I I follow you on LinkedIn and I I get all of those and I appreciate just everything that you everything that you write about. And listeners, thank you so much for your time. I know how valuable it is and I'm grateful that you choose it. You choose to spend it with me every week and my guests. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I would be so incredibly grateful if you haven't done so already, if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Super easy if you already listen to your shows over there. Um, But if you don't, or maybe you have the app on your phone, but you listen to the show on a different app, if you could leave a review for this show, it matters so much. I wish I could express how much it matters. I also wish that it didn't matter so much, but alas, it does. So if you haven't already, please go review and rate the show. It would mean so much to me. And thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing day. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.